Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. And welcome to episode 0000, let's say 160 of the mission. My name is Daniel James. I'll be your host, broadcasting to you from Radio City Docklands. And as we know, Radio City Docklands is on the home of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past and present and to any mob that are out there listening tonight. So, yes, I am back now. I'm back proper. It was a bit of a false start the other week. I had some engagements that, quite frankly, I forgot that I had. I have a nasty habit of saying yes to things months in advance. And then when they turn up on the day, it's always a nice surprise. Um, Since I was last here, uh, there's been a federal election, of course. The old have been sent packing and a wave of teal, green, red will now swamp both Houses of Parliament, which will be refreshing, to say the very least. Now, one of the major reforms the government was spruiking, and indeed seemed to be one of its key planks as part of its election strategy, was the Uluru Statement of the Heart. We now have a government that is prepared to take the statement and the voice encapsulated in the statement to a referendum to embed it in our constitution. The Greens support the voice, and as far as I know, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure so do all of the Teal members of Parliament, so-called Teal members of um, members of Parliament. Now, that's enough to get the bill through Parliament to come up with a referendum question and to take that question to an actual referendum as committed to by the Albanese government. Now, that's the easy part. The hard part, as history shows us, it's extremely, extremely difficult to get a majority of votes in a majority of states to change the constitution. Out of the 44 referendums that have been held nationwide, only eight have been carried. So in order to get this referendum concerning a voice to parliament in particular to have any chance of succeeding, it's going to require bipartisan support. And that's where new opposition leader Peter Dutton comes in. Now, some of you may remember the occasion when he, as only one of two MPs in the House, walked out on the apology to the Stolen Generations, an act of pure malevolent bastardry that some of us will never forget. So the question is, are the opposition going to support the statement from the heart? Because if they don't, it is going to be very, very, very difficult to get a successful referendum up and happening. The opposition is at a crossroads here, and so too is the nation, the place that we now call Australia. Now, I've always been a firm believer that the way we change this place for the better is through story, and the Uluru Statement does just that. It changes the story of the nation, and at the same time, it adds value. But it also does another thing. By having First Nations voices at the heart of our federal democracy, it changes the national discourse, the way First Nations people are spoken about and talked to. We go from being a problem in the eyes of many to being 
at the at, at at the coal face, for want of a better term, to becoming problem solvers from the very get-go. And when our stories are heard, when they are ingrained in the constitution of this land and the way the world sees us and treats us, that also changes as well. This is why I'm a firm believer that the voice and the statement from the heart will actually result in real-world outcomes. Because if we as a nation move from being seen, from seeing Aboriginal people as less than second-class citizens to the oldest, from from being seen as less less than second-class citizens to being seen as the oldest ongoing civilization known to humanity, then it means that people like Yorta Yorta woman Veronica Nelson would still be alive today. Now, I know that's a provocative statement, but it's one I ask you to think about. If we actually start treating the first peoples of this land as the remarkable, precious resource that we are, then you're not going to lock someone up in a cell and let them die in a pool of their own vomit like we've seen countless times across the journey over the years since colonialism. If we treat Indigenous people like what they are, a precious, value-adding resource to this nation, then instances like that will not happen. And that's why I am now coming out fully in support of the Uluru Statement of the Heart. So let's get this thing done and let's hope that Peter Dutton and the opposition come on board to support it because getting a majority of votes and a majority of states is no mean feat and it needs us to be all pushing in the same direction. Now, speaking of provocative... I'll be playing a pre-recorded interview I had this morning with the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, Narita Waite. As we move towards the state election, there are a number of urgent justice reforms that need to be actioned, bail reform being just one. So we'll talk to her about that and uh, plenty more shortly. And in the second half of the show, I'll be joined by the co-chair of the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria, Marcus Stewart. The Victorian treaty process continues in earnest, and today it was announced that the Assembly and the Victorian government agreed to the creation of an independent authority to oversee treaty negotiations and help resolve disputes. A very important move if we were to have a treaty negotiated on even terms. So we'll talk to Marcus about that. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You're listening to The Mission on 102.73 Triple R FM or maybe you're listening to it through the National Indigenous Radio Service. Hello to you. Or perhaps you're listening to it back on demand or maybe you're listening to it via podcast. I don't care how you listen to it, just listen to it. It's good stuff full of good people. Now, to our first guest, and like I said, it's a pre-recorded conversation, and I apologise for the, the quality, but sometimes when you speak to busy people, they're busy, busy being busy. So this is the case with uh, Narita Wake because she was driving um, around this morning as part of her job. Um, like I said, at the start of the show, there is another election coming up now in November, and it's a state election. And so this means that the state election, which is usually often, you know, about law and order in the main, is likely to happen again. And so we're likely to see a scare campaign around the main streets of Melbourne and what that uh, means for propping up law and order in this state to make sure that uh, bad people 
don't do bad things. But what that actually results in most of the time is good people who don't do bad things being caught up in the middle of all that. And so the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service is calling for a number of major reforms, either in the lead up to the election or as a result of the election, to make sure that that doesn't continue to happen. Probably I would suggest at the top of that list would be uh, bail reform, which uh, Narita will describe more in detail shortly. Um, also, there's been an IBAC report that has come out recently and come out with some recommendations around the complaints process for the way that uh, police treat and deal with Aboriginal people. As we know, in this state, unlike some other states, we have police investigating police when it comes to complaints. And so that's something that um, needs to happen broadly, but it particularly needs to happen when it comes to complaints levelled by Aboriginal people. So without further ado, I will play the um, conversation I had with uh, Narita Wright, who is a Yorta Yorta person and the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. Narita, welcome back to the mission. Thanks, Daniel. It's always a pleasure to be here. We're heading into, well, we're not heading into an election year. We're in the middle of an election year for, uh, for the state government. We just had the federal election. Um, a tendency over recent years has been for state governments to have elections that are really centred and focused around law and order with Aboriginal people quite often being caught in, in the crossfire. What, what are you looking for during this election campaign for, for not only the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service but for Aboriginal justice generally? Um, certainly, I think the law and order aspect has already started. You've seen that with the Victorian government um, pull back on the progressing the new youth justice bill, yep. um, which would have um, separated youth justice and the Children's Youth and Families Act um, and has been a really cool process for um, both the mainstream and agro sector um, in terms of working with the department to develop that. So that's um, quite worrying that um, for fear of a law and order debate, um, we are holding off on important reforms. Um, I think that we will see a lot of discussion uh, around... Coaching red light camera health, and speed camera. Um, just because we've had the Mental Health Royal Commission this year, but also because um, in the coronial space, we saw a report released which indicated that Aboriginal Trader Islander uh, suicides went up by 65% um, during the COVID-19 period, which is a horrifying statistic. What's also interesting is that um, of that 75%, the vast majority, so over 80%, had had justice contact in the last, in the last 72 hours of their lives. So, again... Um, very horrifying um, to see the situation with Murray and um, hopefully we can put some holistic supports in. It's not just about um, justice system changes, it's also about mental health funding changes, it's about making sure that we're addressing all of the issues um, that surround a person and providing them the network of support so they don't tragically take, take the parts to take their life. Um, I think we will naturally um, see discussion about family violence. We didn't see the steep increases that we thought we would during COVID-19, um, but no doubt is it still trending up. Um, it is a national and state-based issue. Um, I think the change in federal election naturally brings up um, climate change. 
Um, can't ignore that given um, the successful um, results for a number of the fuel independents. Uh, I also think that we'll see um, a, a lot of conversation um, around treaty um, and um, around how Victoria itself um, is going to commit to an Indigenous voice. Yeah, there's... there's... So, on my surface... Thoughts at this stage. There's just so much going on in this. So much going on in this space, and so much um, not going on in this space as well. At the same time, when you think about it, um, I think it was earlier this year the Legal and Social Issues Committee, uh, um, a Victorian parliamentary inquiry, found that Victoria's criminal legal system does not appropriately or fairly balance the maintenance of community safety with the presumption of innocence for people accused of an offence, and of course. Uh, Aboriginal people come out on the uh, raw end of this um, time and time again. Um, you obviously would have uh, followed that inquiry quite closely. Um, what has the government committed to doing about that, if anything? Um, look, uh, the, the inquiry into the criminal justice system um, was something that we were extensively involved in. Um, and certainly we were hopeful of um, some more progressive recommendations. Um, unfortunately, um, many of them were watered down, which is often done um, by governments in power. Uh, in terms of actions, um, I think we're seeing very little, and I don't think we will see much Daniel in the lead-up to the election. Um, I think this is something they'll kick down the road um, until post-election where uh, they might then feel emboldened to act. And many of them were deprecated. I mean, we're talking about doing another review in debate when the evidence is overwhelming as to what needs to be done. Um, there were some really good things in relation to sentencing reform, um, which is really important. And also I think um, what was missing um, in that group was asking to redefine what community safety is. Um, it's become a phrase that is so often used that now it really doesn't mean anything. So we need to define what it means, what its parameters are, and make sure that we are actually doing things in the interest of safety, not just um, about unknown people, but um, trying to protect the whole of society and further their protect their aims. Um, victims are entitled to community safety. Um, you know, people who commit crimes are often committing crimes like survival crimes because they don't have access to funds, they don't have a roof over their head. You know, they're entitled to a measure of safety um, and an ability to access the resources that they need. So I think that I, for one, would like to see um, us to stop using community safety, start to define what it is that we want from our system um, and start to go after it. One of the, 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 the committee came up with um, 100 um, recommendations for, for change. Um, and in relation to the bail laws specifically, um, it referred to repealing the reverse onus provisions in the bail laws. Um, what does that mean for a layperson? Uh, a really complex system um, that I think the uh, inquest um, into the death of Ronnie Kamelson is showing that not even police um, understand how to apply it. Um, and certainly what we have seen um, throughout iterations of Labor governments and Liberal governments is a rollback um, of bail So what that means is that in 1987, when Rickety started, um, through to when they published their report, 
on lightings. Our bail laws were more progressive then than they are now. At this point in time, um, if let's hypothetically say, Daniel, that um, you had uh, committed a, um, a shoplift, for example, um, and perhaps you've had some outstanding fines, um, perhaps you've done this before um, and you haven't shown up um, to your previous court appearance and that would be for a myriad of reasons, you would be in a position where you would have to show cause and there would actually be no feasible route um, for you to be bailed. You would most likely be remanded um, where you can spend, I mean, in terms of my conversations lately with um, our members incarcerated, some of them are spending up to 16 weeks um, on remand before their further bail application is heard. Now, the idea um, is that during from your bail application that is failed to your next one, you would have connected with sufficient supports um, like KISP um, and other programs and then be in a position where you can show that you've ameliorated your risk. It is really, really hard to do that with the shortage of programs and people um, that we are currently suffering in the sector, um, but also for those who are homeless, Daniel, and don't have a roof over their head. For them to be able to commit to um, court dates, to programs, is really, really difficult and mm. often insurmountable. Um, and what we... What the reverse owners' provisions um, effectively have done to many of our people is land them in um, jail, which is why we have a higher amount of population than our Aboriginal people. And we can see the, the tragic effects when uh, people that have actually committed no crime in many instances actually end up in, in the justice system. And we're, we're seeing that play out uh, tragically and recently through the coronial inquest into Veronica Nelson's um, death. Uh, you've obviously been following that closely. I've, I've seen um, Val's on, on Twitter um, keeping a very clean, keen and um, interested eye on the proceedings there. What have, what have been your some of your takeaways from that inquest so far? Yes, look, Val's has been fortunate that we, um, that we represent um, Veronica's partner, Percy Lovett, in those proceedings. Um, so we have been able to um, work to advance justice for um, for Veronica through um, Percy. And sadly, I think that um, Veronica's case highlights how ineffective our system is at multiple levels. Um, there were failings within police, there were failings within courts, and there certainly were tragic failures in relation to corrections um, mm. and their health providers. And I think that often enough, uh, Daniel, prison healthcare is something that perhaps we don't do a lot of thinking about. Yeah. And this has highlighted why it should be an issue that we all think about and that we all pay attention uh, because that's if we don't, what happens is that we get a substandard healthcare system um, and people die because of it. Yeah, and um, that seems to have um, been the case in in this instance, um, <laughs> tragically. Um, I mean, you, you're right. There's, there were so many um, system failures across multiple systems that resulted in Veronica being in the being at Dame Phyllis Ross Centre in the first place, and then not receiving the um, attention that she desperately needed. Um, 
what do you hope comes out of the out of the inquest? What 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 is what are you wanting to hear from the coroner? Um, I'm wanting recommendations um, around bail in light in, uh, that are in accordance with Bowser's position around um, what should happen with bail law. Um, I want to see changes in prison healthcare. Um, at the moment, people in prison do not have access to Medicare or the pharmaceutical benefit scheme, um, and they don't have access to outside health providers or ACHOs. Um, and that's certainly something that needs to be improved immediately. Um, I also would like to see um, recommendations around OPCAT because an independent detention oversight system in Victoria, what's culturally appropriate for Aboriginal people, is required to end Aboriginal deaths in custody. Um, you know, we did implement OPCAT in 2000, and, sorry, we did ratify it in 2017. Um, last year, uh, we were in the lead up to our deadline of um, Jan 22. We missed it. Uh, we have a 12-month 12 extension. 12 it is time um, that we take it seriously, that we implement it, because at the moment all we are seeing is trending upwards when it comes to destiny. And all of that happened, um, and in the midst of all of this, um, IBAC uh, released a rep- report in which it did an audit of Victoria Police and it found that there were failures in handling of complaints when it came to um, to Aboriginal people. Um, you are obviously following that closely as well, and the report has been handed out, um, handed down by IBAC now, and is available on their on their website. Um, the report made a, a series of recommendations, ten recommendations. Um, one of the recommendations was establishing a dedicated process for handling of complaints made by Aboriginal people. Um, what would a system like that look like from, from your perspective? Uh, well, you certainly can't colour me surprised about the results um, of that audit. Yeah. Uh, certainly that is why um, we have been pushing that we need an independent body for complaints against police stronger regulations controlling the use of body-worn cameras and predictive policing, and have active programs to address systemic racism within the police force and limit the powers of PSOs. Um, all of those things come from our experiences um, as recounted by Aboriginal people. Um, what we saw um, through that audit was a small capture um, of those instances, um, and as you would have seen, um, a major proportion of those complaints concerned the use of force. Yeah. Um, and unsurprisingly, when police investigate police, um, issues of bias come up, um, issues of insufficient investigation occur, um, but also you just break down the trust of the person who's made the complaint. Why would I make a complaint to you um, if one of your friends is going to investigate it? It makes no sense. I thought we'd uh, just pause it uh, there. Uh, we had some technical issues um, after that particular part of the uh, conversation, but I'm going to try and um, bring it up to where it was so we can have a finish of that uh, conversation with Narita Waite, the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service uh, CEO. Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR. So here's me wrapping up the conversation with uh, Narita Waite. We had um, some dropout issues uh, while she was um, busy driving around. Um, but here in a very haphazard way is the uh, very end of the conversation, which is basically me wrapping up the conversation. In 
in relation to very tumultuous circumstances, often tragic circumstances, and the interaction that results from that um, is just so important to, to setting, in many instances, someone on, on the right track, on the right path to um, you know, a, a new life. But what we're seeing is that when it gets to that interaction between the community and the justice system, it often just makes things worse, and that's not the way it should be. No, no, it shouldn't be. And Aboriginal people who make complaints, Daniel should be able to have them investigated independently. They should have evidence collected. They should they should have an investigation that is free from bias, and they should have a chance to tell their story and be respected. Absolutely. Well, Narita, thank you so much for for your time. Um, we'll keep in contact as the. Uh, the year progresses. I just hope it's not as, um, I guess, a vitriolic law and order campaign as we saw back in uh, the last election, because that was really something else when it came to um, African gangs in particular. Let's hope that uh, the the election is held in a in a relatively civilized way, and that Aboriginal people don't get caught in the middle of what can be a very toxic law and order debate leading up to a state poll. But um, thank you so much for your time and. Um, Have a great day. You too, Daniel. Thank you. Goodbye. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Now to um, our next and uh, special guest at the end of uh, this episode of The Mission. Today it was announced that the First People's Assembly of Victoria and the government have reached agreement to create what they're calling a treaty umpire grounded in First Peoples culture, law and law. Basically, the treaty umpire is there to oversee the negotiations between the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria, uh, taking um, uh, conducted in on equal footing with the state government. If you think of all the resources, of course, that state governments have around the place to actually um, litigate conduct their business, push their agenda. Um, This is a landmark um, announcement that will make sure that any negotiating around treaty is done on an equal footing. Now, the best person, of course, to speak to about today's announcement and the treaty process in general is the co-chair of the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria, Marcus Stewart. Marcus Marcus has been on the show before. As you know, he's a Tanarong man from central Victoria, has extensive experience in Aboriginal affairs, mainly in traditional owner settings, and he's on the line now. Marcus, welcome back to the mission. Thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure. No sweat whatsoever. Um, it's been a been another very busy day for you. It has, yeah. As you can probably tell, my voice is a, a little bit scratchy, so I apologise in advance. There's been a lot of news and a lot of media, but save the best till last. Thank you. The cheque is in the mail, and we didn't discuss that at all before you came on air this evening. I just want to make that very clear to the listenership. <laughs> um, tell, us about, <laughs> tell us about um, this treaty umpire what, what what's the genesis behind the idea and how will it actually work in in real life yeah absolutely i mean it's a critical entity it's basically keeping government honest at the negotiation table and if i take a step back to when the assembly was first uh, stood up and we were elected and entrusted to deliver the nation's first ever treaty making process and the architecture around treaty 
this was the critical first piece that we uh, had to negotiate with government and we've reached agreement on a treaty authority, which will be the independent umpire. It'll facilitate treaty making for the first time in this nation's history and it'll respect, observe and be underpinned by cultural authority, Aboriginal law and Western law. So it's a pretty historic day and a pretty significant um, moment in time. I think it's really important to make it very clear as well that it sits outside of of government. It doesn't feed into any one particular um, department, if I'm right. It's actually um, an entity by itself that will hold you know both sides to account, but particularly the government, given the amount of resources that they have to 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 throw at things like this. Absolutely. And one thing that we heard loud and clear on the back of extensive consultations over the last two and a half years from our mob, our community, our nations, was um, we needed to rethink how we were going to approach this. It couldn't be just a continued government cookie-cutter and bureaucratic process. We had to look at how we formed institutions in our shape uh, by our design, and so in the so it met the aspiration of our community. Uh, they were the the architects of this. We were the builders as elected members and we had to make sure that it sat well outside of government. So it uh, wasn't a government controlled instrument. It was something that was completely independent of the treaty making uh, or the parties that will be negotiating treaties and it oversaw uh, that process happening. So making sure there's integrity at the table, bringing parties together, negotiations happening in good faith. And I think it's pretty. It's something pretty or to be pretty excited about you know, as blackfellas here in Victoria or non-Indigenous people, this is going to oversee treaty making, hopefully next year for the first time in this nation's history. It's it's historic and it's significant. So, yeah, let's talk about, I mean, there's been so much work being undertaken as a part of the, of the treaty process, you know, um, you know, the UROC Justice Commission happening alongside the process um, in itself is just, just a tremendous amount of work and the work of the Assembly itself has been a, a tremendous journey and one that is far from, from over. How long are we away from seeing a negotiated treaty or treaties in this state? Well, you make a really good point. And, you know, you think about the journey of the Assembly. Um, we called on this uh, nation's first ever truth-telling process and we designed, developed and delivered the Yuruk Justice Commission, uh, our first entity of its kind, and it's there to inform the treaty process and it is part of the um, the treaty process in Victoria. Now it's the, uh, the treaty authority, which is significant, um, and um, it's pretty inspiring to think of how far we've come um, and what we've able to achieve. And, I mean, I'm in a pretty privileged position when I think about it. I get to sit at the table uh, with our inspiring elected members who are, you know, there on the front line having the consultations with our community across the state and, and driving our agenda further. So once we've delivered and the authority stood up, we will pivot to... Um, negotiating the treaty negotiation framework, which we're currently out consulting on, but also the self-determination fund. So if we think about putting those three pieces together, which we call the treaty architecture, you'll have the framework which sets the ground rules for negotiations. It's the activation piece. You'll have the authority, which is the facilitator of the process or the holder of the process to make sure treaty negotiations are are progressing, 
and the self-determination fund, which is what will resource these negotiations. And now that we have bipartisan support in the state of Victoria, treaty making is part of the state's furniture, is what we know is normal and it's non-political and it's something that we can all be excited about. Yeah, I think it's um, it's a tremendously exciting time. One of the things that was very pleasing for someone like myself who's um, you know, um, a step or two back from the machinations of all this was how well the elections were conducted um, to find uh, a replacement in the northeast of Victoria when um, when a seat on the um, assembly uh, came came up. That process seemed to run really smoothly and um, went without any sort of hitch, which was um, tremendously pleasing to see. I can tell you it was tremendously pleasing for it to happen that way from our end as well. It was our first <laughs> by-election, so we're all a little nervous. Um, but, you know, it was um, it was a well-contested uh, position and um, the end result means that um, we're able to welcome Travis Morgan, the new elected member for the the uh, northeast uh, region, and um, we'll also, you know, be welcoming him to our, you know, our next chamber meeting, um, which is coming up. Yeah, it's going to be tremendously exciting for him to, to be a part of that for the for the first time. Um, just going back to one thing you said before, so we, we have this new authority, the umpire, but we also have a fund which was agreed to um, um, some months ago, if not some years ago, and that fund actually goes into making sure that um, our traditional owners and, and, and First Nations people actually have access to a, a decent amount of resources to actually push their case in, in, the, in the negotiations of a treaty. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, there's been previous funds. This one's different. Um, we've, we're setting out an independent source of revenue because we've seen numerous funds stood up by government to resource, you know, um, you know, traditional owners or Aboriginal initiatives and programs they're not self-determination funds. They're more self-indulgent funds. But this is completely independent. This will be uh, an independent entity, which will be part of funding the whole um, treaty process and creating equal footing. So making sure that there is equal footing at the negotiation table, which is pretty exciting. That means that uh, no mob will be left behind. It'll be the tide that raises all ships. And we can see sovereign-to-sovereign -sovereign negotiations, which are critically important in the state of Victoria. It is 13 to 8. You listen to The Mission. My name's Daniel. I'm speaking with Marcus Stewart, the co-chair of the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria. We're talking treaty and um, plenty of other um, intricate details relating to it. Uh, one of the things that I've liked to, liked to have seen as well, um, Marcus, is there now seems to be momentum behind the process. There now seems to be um, prominent people from different nations and clans across the state now that are coming out in full support of the treaty process because they're beginning to see what was initially an abstract idea in the minds of many to something that is now beginning to take root within the community and it's actually moving in a direction where people can actually start to picture what a treaty would look like. That must have, that must be tremendously satisfying for um, yourself and um, Aunty Geraldine. It absolutely is. Um, it's a true credit to our community and an absolute testament to our elected members who have, you know, put the hard work in through what's been a, a tough two and a half years. And, I mean, the we talk about it being nation-leading, uh, which it is, and everyone will say, oh, here we go, Victorians big note themselves again. But 
Um, to your point, the difference of what we're doing here in Victoria is we've turned rhetoric into reality. Where where the rubber hits the road, we're standing up the institutions, which you'll see in in our own shape and by our own aspiration, that'll oversee treaty making. That we'll see will oversee sovereign to sovereign negotiations, which will see a, a statewide treaty being negotiated by the First People's Assembly of Victoria with the state government, which will set out to build political power and improve the lives of our people. And then we'll see traditional owner nations negotiating treaties by their design, by their aspiration, underpinning their sovereignty with the state of Victoria. And that's, you know, you can't underestimate how exciting that is. And People are starting to see that now and they're like, you know, we want to be part of this. It makes sense because, you know, I don't say it lightly of when it was, you know, the rhetoric, like we long marched the streets to this and it's a testament to our elders, our yep. ancestors. And that um, saying is, you know, is true of when it was first said to it is now that we walk on the shoulders of giants. And one thing that we're very acutely aware of as the First People's Assembly of Victoria is that we're building on the work of our ancestors and our elders and our activists and our advocates who have got us to this point. And that is why we've been successful, because we've been able to build on that work. And um, and I think that's why everyone's on board and those who aren't are getting on board, because it's pretty exciting what we're doing. I mean, people like um, you and I, Marcus, have been around for a while. <clears throat> I've been around a little bit longer than you in terms of this caper, just through age. Um, but... Um, I've never been at a point in my sort of semi-professional life where I've become so used to the state government saying yes to ideas that are put forward to by by the community. It's it's a um, it's a surreal and marvelous thing to 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 be occurring at the moment. It is. I wish uh, I had the same experience that um, I was so used to government saying yes. It's not typically what we experience at the negotiation table, but we eventually get to the yes, and that's what we hear publicly. And you know, to the credit of um, of the government, they've stepped into the space and 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 owned what they need to do better, what they need to change, what they need to improve, and how they need to think. And for us, is we were set the hard task. Um, as the Assembly, were elected and entrusted to meet the moment for our community and deliver what's never been done, and that's what we've done. Um, the government, we've set them some enormous challenges like truth-telling. And um, while it's, you know, sometimes a fight to negotiate these up, it's not, you know, there's, there's nothing easy about how negotiations run. It's an absolute fight, and we're going in, you know, representing the interests of our community and building on the advocacy and activism of you know, those who have come before us. But, um, you know, you get his credit where credit's due and that's the government stepping into the space and, and and agreeing. And it is a unique and kind of weird weird time um, from what you used to government just saying no and you even look federally more recently in the treatment of the original treatment of the Uluru Statement from the heart. 
It is um, it is a, an exciting time to, to be around, that's for sure. Um, the bill to establish the, the Treaty Authority goes in the Parliament in July. Another great thing, as you mentioned earlier, is that we actually have bipartisan support for treaty in this state. There was always something we used to worry about when we were coming up to elections would... Um, if the uh, Liberal National Party were to get in, would they kibosh the whole process? They've given an assurance they won't do that. So this thing is happening. Um, it's not going anywhere. And it's a tremendous, um, I guess, I guess it's tremendous to see the First Peoples Assembly doing what it does selflessly because there isn't much on a personal level except for establishing a process for members of the Assembly to be involved in this. And so the amount of hours and the amount of days and the amount of emotional toil that goes into establishing some of things, some of these things is a credit to all of you, Marcus. And um, uh, I hope that you're able to, to pass that on to, to the rest of the Assembly because um, those of us out here appreciate it. More than happy to, to pass that on, and I'm sure a lot of them are listening in right now. So a shout-out to them. A shout-out to them. Um, have a nice cup of tea and have a nice night. I don't know what's on the box, but uh, make sure you watch something that takes your mind off it all because this is very, very taxing work. But in the meantime, Marcus, I'll let you go because you've had a very, very long day, and I thank you so much for coming on the show once again. Appreciate your time. Take care. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Well, that's it for another episode of The Mission. It is uh, very good to be back. Thank you to Narita Waite and Marcus Stewart for their contributions this evening. I will be back next Tuesday. Um, until next week, stay safe, stay strong, stay warm and stay listening. Ta-da. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>